This is the Cotswolds People podcast, brought to you by Alistair James Insurance Brokers. My name's Alistair, and throughout this podcast, I'm going to be speaking with a variety of very special guests from the worlds of business, sport, music, literature, politics, and many more, all of whom have a connection to the Cotswolds area of outstanding natural beauty. Do please leave us a review or rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear our latest guest interviews. This week I'm joined by the MP for Cheltenham, Alex Chalk. This recording takes place in week nine of lockdown following the coronavirus pandemic and we discuss the impact this has had on the political landscape and how Alex believes Cheltenham and the local area will emerge from it. Like earlier episodes that have been recorded during the lockdown, our conversation is recorded over Zoom and we start off by hearing how Alex has been working these last couple of months. By and large, I, would say I think the tech has worked reasonably well. There's a there's quite there's quite an amusing video that's going around on WhatsApp of um, people sitting in a room, but as if they're experiencing the difficulties of barking dogs and dropped out connections and stuff. So yeah, we but it's quite funny. But yes, we have had a bit of few technological mishaps, but overall it's worked pretty well. How has the last couple of months obviously been for you? You started, I guess, you had to self isolate as well, away from your family. That was quite early on as well, wasn't it? How's yeah, how's that well, been? it was. Yeah, it was really early on, actually. That was um, when Nadine Doris came down with it. And uh, I got this call out of the blue from Public Health England saying, yeah, you're going to have to go into self-isolation. And that was on the basis that uh, Nadine and I had been in the library for half an hour or so. So that, um, but that feels like a lifetime ago now. That was, I guess, in early, early March. And um, then I've been, since then, I've been back down in in Cheltenham, occasionally popping up to Parliament to do what needs to be done. But from the 2nd of June, I'll be back in harness. So there we go. Yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, I know Jacob Rees-Mogg said that he wants or believes that MPs should be back at the beginning of June. Is that, are MPs generally, are they happy with that? What's the general consensus? Or are some still wanting to perhaps isolate or, or something not? So, I mean, my clear view is that we, we should be back. And I think we need to send out the message that we're, we're open for business, that... Um, democracy's flowing on like a mighty river and so on and look i think there is a really prosaic point as well which is that if you want to get the business of government done there's a whole load of legislation that needs to be enacted then you need mps there and in my own particular field i'm responsible for uh, bringing into law the domestic abuse bill which includes a whole load of really important protections for victims of domestic abuse usually women not exclusively and if you're all sitting at home in your constituencies it's very very difficult to get that committee work the line by line work done so that's the first thing but it's not just that i think it's also the, the cut and thrust of um of the debate it's much much more difficult to really build up that tempo and to properly explore the issues and frankly properly hold the government to account which is what parliamentarians of all stripes should want to do and i say that speaking as a government minister myself you know scrutiny really really matters but you asked a question about how it's going down i think overall uh, most people certainly people that i speak to in the in the conservatives are are keen to go back not exclusively i think it's fair to say i think there are some who are concerned about how long it's going to take to vote because you can't use the voting lobbies so there's going to be sort of long queues to do it but my my clear feeling is that we've got to turn up, we've got to make it work, and we're simply going to have to live with this new normal. And democracy is critically important. People look to us, so we've got to make a success of it. And how's it been in Parliament in terms of the social distancing? Is that um, how's it been managed? Everyone getting used to it? Well, I mean, you say how is it been managed? I mean, the reality is the overwhelming majority of MPs aren't anywhere near 
Parliament. That's how it's been managed, bluntly, because you've seen the footage in the chamber that it's very sparsely uh, populated now. And that's not because there's a whole load of people outside straining to get in. It's because they're in their constituencies. And, and although it's worked tolerably well in the sense that we've managed to have uh, PMQs of sorts and there have been oral parliamentary questions of sorts and I'm somebody who's had to answer some in the Ministry of Justice it's just not the same it really isn't and although I, I absolutely take my hat off to the IT guys for for what they've done in really really short period of time to make it work I, I think it's a it's a pretty hollow, hollow attempt at a parliament, really. And I think we've just got to get back so that that proper cut and thrust of debate um, can, can continue. It's a, it's a pale imitation of parliament, and I want to see the full fat version. I mean, a lot of um, businesses obviously looking at how they are going to be working going forward. Do you, from what you said, therefore, really, parliament and that's a model, model or, you know, institution that it really has to work as it is, really. There's no way of doing anything like that remotely like other businesses are looking to to operate it just has to be on site debating that's that's the way it's going I, I look I, th I think so i know there's more than one view so some might say well listen you know this is ridiculous it's the 21st century you ought to be able to vote remotely and so on but i think this experience has told us that there are certain workplaces where actually a level of face-to-face -face contact matters and the reality is if you want to have decent decision making by that i mean people who've listened to the debate or at least had the opportunity to discuss with others the, the people's concerns about legislation or or areas where it could be improved and so on i'm afraid it is far more difficult to do that when the person is in the outer hebrides and if, if, if the kind of human contact in the tea room it might sound uh, bizarre but that's actually where you start to thrash out some of these important issues so my feeling is yes you can, look you can have you can have a kind of uh a, a parliament of sorts but it's a pale limitation of parliament and when you're dealing with issues like the domestic abuse bill when you're dealing with issues like covid and how we should begin emerging from it i just think you've got to have those minds absolutely focused on the relevant bits of legislation and unfortunately being scattered to the four winds doesn't allow the intensity of debate that I think really is required, particularly at a time like this. But goodness knows, there are other issues going on. I mean, there's a whole issue of our future relationship with the European Union, for example. And I think we've got to turn up, A, for democracy, and B, because it sends out a message that we are going to make this work. We're going to adjust to a new normal. The show's got to get back on the road. The economy's got to reheat. We're going to have to move forward. And, uh, and we've, got to, we've got to do so with a real can-do spirit. You've spent a lot of your time obviously in Cheltenham. What has the feedback been from the constituents here and people working in the constituency, um, you know, from NHS workers, from key, key workers and so on? What sort of uh, feedback and comments are you getting from people? It's one of the feedbacks and, co and comments. It's very hard to answer that uh, simply. I mean, the, the reality, let me, let me try and break it down a little bit. I mean, in terms of the health services, everyone is extremely enthusiastic and grateful about uh, the NHS, and that's as you would expect. I think it's, there is a, a, a note of relief as well in, in the sense that the hospitals, which we feared at one stage were going to be completely overrun, there were some apocalyptic visions of, I don't know, field hospitals up at the race course and goodness knows what. But thanks to the, the, the brilliance of the folks working in the hospitals that that hasn't happened and at the time we're recording this i think there are something like three people in the icu and the capacity is over 90. now of course 
that is a short-term relief because immediately you start thinking, well, hang on, um, what's the opportunity cost being? You know, what about people who haven't been able to have their routine appointments and so on? And, and I know now there's a really intense effort to, to ramp that up so that people's cancer treatment will continue and all that sort of thing. So anyway, from that point of view, though, there's been a sense of relief but focus on the recovery. In terms of the economics, um, I think the thing that has been... The thing that I, in some ways I've been most sort of proud about in the response is the fact that Cheltenham alone has had something like £24 million in these grants which go out to businesses and retail, hospitality, leisure and so on. And I mean, to put £24 million in context, the, 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 the Borough Council's annual budget is around about £12 million, right, for all the bins, for all the planning, for all the odds and sods that they do. And so £24 million going into Cheltenham uh, businesses. That has been, uh, I mean, there's no doubt there's been the difference between oblivion and solvency for some, and that, as you know, grants of 10,000 or 25,000. But of course, and the furlough schemes made a difference as well. But inevitably, there are some areas where people don't fit into neat categories, and those have been some of the toughest conversations. And the a lot of my work that has been how we can try and help those individuals who don't naturally fit into either being employed or self-employed or being eligible for the business rates. So that's been an important part. So really, it's been about lives and it's been about livelihoods and lots of issues arising out of both. So as a whole, then, in terms of Cheltenham and the surrounding Cotswold areas, generally, how well equipped are they to, to come through it and emerge compared to perhaps other parts of the country? Do you think we're well, we're well placed in Cheltenham? I think there are areas of real resilience and strength. So, for example, um, we've got a, we've managed to secure a load of uh, government investment in Cheltenham and Gloucestershire. So, for example, we all know about the Air Balloon Roundabout, but also in Cheltenham specifically, there's the Cyber Park, which is something I've been very sort of passionate about. But there's twenty some odd million going into improving the road network around there. So, in the past, I've talked about it a bit like a kind of micro. New Deal. So we remember in the 1930s, Roosevelt said, you know, we're going to have a new deal to rebuild America. Well, we've got, we've got a lot of government spending that is going to go in to really help Cheltenham and will provide that resilience and help to power us out of this difficult period. However, there are areas where inevitably, like other parts of the country, we're vulnerable as well. And you've only got to cycle through the town centre and you, 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 you just have a proper sense of retail and the vulnerability of retail that existed before we have got a massive high street we always have it stretches stretches for a mile if not more and um there's been a sense for a long time that this was becoming an increasingly marginal business and i, I think if we're being realistic about it we have to recognize that this has probably accelerated a trend that was there anyway and that's why you know, I'm, i've been saying for some time that Although this is a crisis and there's been a retail crisis for some time, you have to try to see what are the positives that can come from that crisis. What I mean by that is I think that there is an opportunity for us to say as a town, hang on a second, we've, got, we've simply got too much retail space. So which parts of town could you look to redesignate as retail? And by the way, the owners of those properties would be delighted because retail tends to be more valuable. And that would have the effect of trying to provide accommodation, particularly for young people who might be more content to have a, a residence in a, in a town centre and provide affordable accommodation for them at the same time as perhaps reducing the retail footprint so that it remains concentrated but vibrant in, over a smaller area. Those are the sorts of things we've got to be thinking about very strategically because um, what I don't want to see is a, a pockmarked town centre 
with boarded up shops, but the occasional one that's still surviving and so on. So I think we need to think, or, the, or the, rather the council needs to think um, really strategically about that. The second thing I'll just mention briefly is, I mean, I, I've been cycling for 20 years, long before it was a kind of fashionable thing to do. There is no doubt that if we want to get fitter, happier and healthier as a society, we've got to normalise active travel. We talked about this for yonks and yonks and yonks now has got to be the time when we deliver it so whether you're young or old whether you're fit or perhaps your athletic days are behind you there is such an opportunity now uh, to improve active travel particularly with the arrival of e-bikes as well so that uh, it's accessible to so many people i think it could be a game changer in places like cheltenham it could be a happier healthier place yeah and i guess you mentioned the cyber park um and attracting people i guess the the infrastructure and things like that that's gonna have to be a big thing that's going to be factored into that, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, well, infrastructure is essential. I mean, the, the, Cheltenham is, um, is a, it's a really interesting place. I mean, it's my hometown. And anyone who's grown up around here has always been really conscious of one thing, right? Which is that it's very beautiful. And yet it sort of seems to be a bit isolated in the sense that you're neither in the Midlands, nor really are you in the Southwest. You're not obviously in Wales, obviously. You're kind of not really in the Thames Valley either. So it's a sort of strange place. But that liability is in fact in my view it's great asset because it is beautifully positioned as a jumping off point for birmingham or for bristol or for cardiff or the thames valley and all these sorts of things and if we just sort out some of these infrastructure bits like for example access to cheltenham off junction 11 and junction 10 and i know by the way we've just got a shed load of money to do precisely those and you sort out the a417 then suddenly i mean cheltenham is in an incredible position and why wouldn't you come here why would you bother sitting in london where the property prices are so high you get very little for your money you can have fantastic schools you're on the edge of the cotswolds you've got a cyber park you've got gchq here you can go to oxford if you need to you've got birmingham and bristol all nearby great um, train service to manchester and so on and suddenly it becomes a really really fantastic hub so i think we've got the potential to do incredible things in in cheltenham you've just got to sort of improve the infrastructure slightly and then people's eyes are suddenly opened to this great place yeah and like we said i think people that previously have been commuting to london probably will think well i don't need to do that anymore we've shown that i don't need to live just outside london and pay you know through the roof house prices and like you say perhaps move to areas like cheltenham absolutely right you watch there is there is going to be a new fluidity uh, people are going to be their lives are going to be up for grabs in the sense they're going to think hang on a second i'm going to baseline my life here. i'm going to reset it do i need to do these things and and i think you're you're absolutely right by the way i should make clear i still think that there are going to be some walks of life uh, e even in the service sector where having that face-to-face -face contact is essential i talked about parliament i really think that's the case but there are going to be other areas as well what is crystal clear, I think, however, is that those issues, and so those meetings which were a bit marginal, you know, do you really need to go all the way up to London for that meeting? Do you really need to, that, that's simply not going to happen. And there's going to be no stigma, no sense of second bestery, if you like, from having a, a Zoom meeting uh, where it's appropriate to happen. And, and so I, I think that there's a great opportunity for Cheltenham. You'll need to have the local physical microclimate in respect of a of, of a cyber hub because it's those conversations in the tea shops and and next to gchq or whatever that are going to really matter so we should take advantage of that but for those people who think well do you know what? i've got to be in london because i need to have tedious meetings with whatever it's just not going to be as important mm. yeah 
True. So before I move on to the, the next topic, I guess there will be people who aren't familiar with your CV, for want of a better word. So you obviously elected as MP for Cheltenham in 2015, but prior to that, you had 14 years experience as a barrister. Can you talk a bit about that role and your specific area of expertise? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So my, I, I um, practice as a barrister, particularly in areas of, of terrorism, uh, also in homicide, so murder, manslaughter, death by dangerous driving, all those sorts of blood and gut stuff, but, and also serious fraud. I did quite a lot of work for the serious fraud office and the financial conduct authority as well. And I, I mean, I, I always found that immensely uh, fulfilling. I, I principally prosecuted, but I also defended as well. It was very, very interesting work, particularly the counter-terrorism work. And um, I, I found it hugely valuable actually in Parliament. First, because when you spend a lot of time as a lawyer grappling with legislation, it means that as you sit there as a lawmaker, you've got one eye on how someone's going to end up having to use this legislation. So I remember being in a, in a bill committee where we were looking at uh, the, uh, the upskirting offence, which you may have, may have read about in the press. And I remember looking at it thinking, hang on, a jury is going to find this particular part of the legislation very, very confusing. And it was possible to lay down an amendment to change it just to just to knock it into shape a bit so I mean I found having had experience as a as a lawyer it'd been really valuable as a legislator in parliament and then how did you get from that into politics was it always something that you were interested in I mean I, I've, I've always been interested in in politics so after I, I grew up around here and then went to university where I read history and then I, I went to London because that was a really good place to to do law I did a law conversion course and uh, I went on and started building my career and so on. I mean, I was always always really interested in in politics. A kind of, uh, uh, you know, I, I hope this doesn't sound like an old, a sort of quaint, old fashioned thing. A, a desire to sort of put myself among the among the great problems of this country and and, and play a part in solving them. I suppose it was always a, something that I was really keen to do. And and then when Cheltenham came up in 2013, I suppose it was now that I knew that they were looking for. A candidate. I thought, well, look, this is my hometown. I've got to, uh, got to put my name forward. And I, I didn't really think at that stage that I was going to get picked because it was the first place I'd ever interviewed for. And, and so I, I was selected as the candidate in 2013. And then after two years of campaigning, I was, I was elected in 2015 against, against the, the run of, uh, the run of evidence, if you know what I mean. So it was a bit unexpected, but it's just been, it's just, it's, it's been really f- fulfilling to be focusing on my home patch. You know, this is this is where I grew up. This is near where my my mum lives, and um, that's what's really motivated me. The idea of it being a somewhere I've got a proper connection with, and it's where I live with my family now. And like your current position as, as parliamentary under secretary of state for the Ministry of Justice, I guess that ties in with what your previous role, as you say, as a as a barrister and, and, and legislation, etc. With regards to the justice system, how have the courts, nationally and locally, how have they been affected by the, the lockdown and uh, any systems that were put in place to help during the pandemic? Have they been working? Is there a big... Crash? Yeah, well, look, it's, it's been extremely difficult. There, there was a moment when the whole thing came to a juddering halt. Um, but the courts have been fantastic at responding and particularly prioritising some of that work, which is extremely urgent and where you require things like, for example, emergency injunctions. So if you're a person who needs to have a domestic violence protection order from the magistrate's court, that work has been prioritised. If you need to get an occupation order, a non-molestation order, the civil courts are prioritising that. And actually, you know, some of the 
uh, private family work, that's to say the, you know, the, the child arrangement orders and all that sort of thing, that's actually ticked up to a pretty similar tempo to what there was in the past. The area which is more difficult are those areas like jury trials, where you'll imagine you've got a load of people that need to be in the court. You've got the 12 jurors, you've got the judge, the barristers, defendants, uh, dock officers, and goodness knows what, and ushers. Getting that sorted has been difficult. But again, the judiciary and practitioners have worked enormously hard. And I think there are three or four uh, jury trials which are back up and running. And we need to, um, you know, we need to reheat this as fast as possible because there are two reasons for that. One, because you need to make sure that the justice system continues and people can get remedies and that justice can be served and criminals can be brought to justice and all that important stuff. But also you've got a load of people who rely for their livelihood on this sector getting back up and running. And if we don't keep, for example, the legal aid sector in work, then uh, we're going to have a problem because one of the things I'm most passionate about is access to justice. It's the sort of thing that people don't think about until they need it. And ensuring that people can go and get that access to justice means professionals doing that work. Professionals doing that work means professionals being in work. So that's another reason why we've got to get these uh, trials up and running as fast as possible. And you mentioned the domestic abuse bill. Obviously, this is a very serious subject. And obviously, unfortunately, the lockdown has seen a, a steep rise in the number of reports of domestic abuse. Are you able to explain the background to the bill and, and how it will improve yes. upon what's already in place and, and who it will help protect? Right. So, so th this bill is actually coming around at the third time of asking. So although domestic abuse is very topical at the moment for the reasons that you rightly point out, this is a bill that has been in the works for some time. And the bill does a number of really important things. First, it, it actually defines what domestic abuse is and provides a statutory uh, definition. Second, we've got a new domestic abuse commissioner who's really important in terms of shining a light on this issue, providing some coherence to some of the support services that are being provided and so on. Um, and um, but also what it does is it creates a system of domestic abuse protection orders so that means that the police can go to court and ask for an order which might mean that a perpetrator has to go on a, an anger management uh, course or, or whatever it is designed to protect the victim so that's a really important part of it it also requires local authorities um, to have a duty to protect individuals who are victims of domestic abuse in terms of housing and other support so I, I mean i'm not going to bore you with every last aspect of it mm. but it is an absolutely vital groundbreaking piece of legislation that is going to transform the climate for victims of uh, domestic abuse i'm really really proud of it. And, it and it comes against the wider context of what's happened in the last 10 years because before i was a minister i was involved in um, protect, helping to protect victims of stalking because there was a horrible case of a, of a Cheltenham GP who was stalked and so on. And I was looking at the law. Before 2012, stalking wasn't even an offence. It was just something that people laughed about. But it's actually an incredibly serious issue. And we now have stalking recognised in the law. We've now got chunky sentences. We've got uh, legislation about victims of people trafficking and so on. So this is all part of a theme about putting victims absolutely at the centre of the criminal justice system and ensuring that justice is served. And that's something that I'm really, I'm really committed to and I think we're really delivering on. And another hot topic at the moment is schools. Um, I know yep. myself, I mentioned, you know, our, our kids are in the local school and they've been keeping us informed. Most latterly saying, you know, if you're not happy with what the situation is, you know, perhaps direct it to um, MP Alex Chalk. Have you had much from sort of parents saying they're not happy with what's, what the arrangements are or, you know, because it seems to be... Yeah, so I've, I've, I mean, I, ha I have had some uh, emails and I've also had emails from head teachers as well who, I mean, I'm really not just saying this. I have nothing but respect for 
the way teachers have responded in uh, in this crisis because i mean just leaving aside the sheer volume of admin and emails and just intensity of work that they've had to deal with there's been um you know, a commendable instinct to want to get the show on the road, want to get kids back in school and so on. So, I mean, I, I absolutely get that. There have been some concerns raised about whether this is the right date from some people, not not from all people. And I'm trying to engage with that and raise and escalate those concerns which are are, um, are fair to, to the DfE. But, you know, I think there is a general recognition that we want to get children back into school. It's the best place for them. You're all familiar with the arguments about how children from disadvantaged backgrounds fall behind and so on. And it would be absolute tragedy to undo so much of this vital work. So of course we've got to make it work in a way that keeps um, teachers safe and secure and make sure that the classrooms uh, are fit for purpose and they're not going to be overwhelmed and so on. Um, but I do, I'm really, really in favour of us trying to make this happen if we possibly can. And it's got to happen at the same time as we've got a proper system in place of tracking down the virus where you have an outbreak, isolating it so that you can have this, what some describe as a whack-a-mole strategy. So that if there is an outbreak, you isolate it so that the rest of the, the rest of society, including schools, can continue with that level of reassurance that if there is to be a, a, an outbreak, we can squash it very quickly without worrying about you know the whole of the whole of a town or a, or, or, or of a wider community uh coming down with it and and i think we're very close to being in that position now as you know the prime minister said that uh from early june we're going to have this track and trace model and i think that's going to make a big difference for schools mm. so is it i mean potentially a case it's difficult isn't it to put throw a blanket over the whole country and say this is the date if like you say there's going to be areas that are worse than others so is it going to be a case that it should be looked at on a on a region by region basis rather than saying this is the date and and that's it well look i mean i i, I really hope that uh, all schools do their best to uh, open on open in early june but you know we've already heard there are parts of the countries where the local authorities have said they're not going to to do that and to be honest i don't really want to get drawn into the rights and wrongs of the particular situation in liverpool or whatever it is i mean all, all i can say is that in my patch in Cheltenham, the teachers are working amazingly hard to make this happen. And that overwhelmingly, there's a kind of can-do spirit about this. And I absolutely commend that. I think that attitude is exactly what we need. I'm not suggesting it's without difficulties. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that it's without courage. You know, people are really going to have to, are, are showing the best sides of themselves, particularly, you know, particularly our teachers, I'm thinking of. And I absolutely admire that. And uh, I'm so grateful to them for, for leaning into this and, and wanting to be so positive about getting our schools open. Mm, excellent. Okay, and moving away from the current situation, you touched upon the, um, the Cheltenham Cyber Park earlier. What's, what's the current situation with that in terms of development and funding and the sponsorship? Right. Et okay, so, so the, the, the situation with that is we, we got the money, the 21, 22 million pounds or so, which was principally for doing the, uh, the civils, if you like, the transport work to open up the... Uh, access from Junction 11 because you'd appreciate the really important thing is that 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 area doesn't get snarled up as people go into the cyber park to the west of GCHQ. So that work is, if it hasn't started already because I haven't been down there for a while, it's imminent. So it's going to be done over the course of this year. That's going to mean uh, improving the uh, capacity of the Alcourt roundabout. It's going to be improving uh, access to Junction 11. So that's all, that's all taking place. Uh, meanwhile, the 
the council is moving because the council have taken a big stake in the land to the west of GCHQ and they are now going out to developers to say how about it in effect let's um let's who who wants to come and help develop this this land and I will be picking up with them in the coming weeks as to where that process is going but government is absolutely behind this in the sense that uh, we were launching it at MIPIM, which was an, it's an international real estate conference in the, in the south of France. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's the DCMS or, or it's, to, or it's uh, you know, GCHQ, we're absolutely behind this because we recognize there's an extraordinary opportunity for us to play a huge part in this, in this growing sector. It's worth over 20 billion pounds a year and Cheltenham is very well placed to do, and Gloucestershire I should, I should say, to really benefit from that in the, in the years ahead. And it's a very exciting future. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I think cyber at the moment, because of the, the situation and how businesses are going to be operating going forward, it, re- it really is going to be for the foreseeable, isn't it? Constantly yeah. growing. Yeah, yeah. And look, we're good at this stuff. I mean, well, I'm, listen, here's, here's the thing. So when I was um, elected in 2015, which you talked about, but before then, I've been thinking, right, if I do get elected, what do I want to do? What, what, what is the point of getting elected? I don't just want to do it for the sake of that. I've got a good job, which probably pays me quite a lot more. So you know, why do I want to do this job? And one of the things I really wanted to, to, to do is because I thought that there was stuff we could do in Cheltenham to really improve the lives and the prospects, particularly of young people here. And the key thing to me is that it was like GCHQ was staring us in the face. Some of the most brilliant minds, not just in the UK, but the whole of uh, Europe, um, particularly in this area of cyber. And yet it was kind of sitting there in splendid isolation. And my whole feeling was, why don't we do more of what, uh, leave aside the politics of this, by the way, but what the Israelis do in the Middle East, as I say, don't, let's not get involved in the politics of the Middle East. But I'm talking about the way they use their... Um, their state apparatus of intelligence, they combine it with their academic base and also with their local civilian infrastructure to create an extraordinary ecosystem that's sitting out in the middle of the Negev desert. And I thought, well, why don't we have something right next to GCHQ to do the same thing? So you, ha- you have this vibrant ecosystem where the finest minds go in and out of a porous barrier, if you like, uh, to GCHQ to, to develop some of their expertise and ensure that it can support local businesses. And the transformation, leave aside whether there's a park or not, the transformation over the last five years has been extraordinary. So there's this local organization called Sinam, Cyber Cheltenham. Mm-hmm. They're like Cylon in London, Sinam here. And it, used to, and it started up with meetups about five years ago, and you might get 30 or 40 people here. There was a recent one up at the race course before lockdown, and there must have been over 200 people, 300 people. I mean, it's, it's massive. And you've got great local businesses, Rip Jar, and so many others that are employing people. But here's the important thing it's not just employing people, important though that is, it's great jobs. These are really well paid jobs with the opportunity for people to develop very significantly. So the UK remains a or is a global leader in cybersecurity, and this means that we can light the afterburners on that just one final anecdote i want to leave you with i was once in Cheltenham town center i was asked to go and see these offices i thought this sounds interesting they were a company that works in cybersecurity. i thought that sounds interesting so i spoke to these i went in and it was a microsoft office i thought that's interesting what are they doing here well it turns out that in Cheltenham, the heart of Cheltenham, in a relatively anonymous building is one of just four places across the planet that Microsoft put their cybersecurity guys. So there's, there's two in the United States, one West Coast, one East Coast, one in Israel and one in Cheltenham. And when there was a defect and there was a flaw 
um, a vulnerability identified in the Microsoft Explorer browser last year in September. Where was the patch devised? Cheltenham. The patch was devised in Cheltenham. It was rolled out in Cheltenham to several hundred million people. And that's just some of the expertise that we've got here. And when you combine that with what's going on in GCHQ, then I really do think the sky's the limit. You get the infrastructure going, people aren't gonna be in London, they're gonna to wanna to hang out in Cheltenham, what's not to like? Yeah, good to hear. Um, and finally, in terms of following what, what you're doing in Parliament, I mean, I have to say, Alex, you're, you're pretty active on Facebook. You do quite a few videos and stuff. It's a good way of keeping in touch with, um, with what's going on down in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've actually been a bit rubbish over the last uh, week or so. I just sometimes you've got to take a breather from social media. But I, I do do that. What I also do is um, I do every fortnight or so these updates. So I just send like an email update so people can read it at their leisure. And also it means that I have a chance to pull my, you know, pull my thoughts a bit. It's not just kind of just chucking stuff out on social media all the time. So if people want to sign up for those updates, and I've got over 10,000 people on them now, they're quite an important way of getting local information. They should just drop me an email and um, I'll, I'll sign them up. You can, as you know, you can always unsubscribe at a click uh, if you're finding it boring, but it's a useful way of people keeping up to date with what's going on in Cheltenham, whether it's on cyber or the air balloon or any of the things that you, you refer to. So I'd encourage your listeners to do that. Brilliant. Lovely, Alex. Well, thank you for joining us. And um, well, we look forward to seeing you in Parliament in just over a week's time. Well, great. And thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's been really fun. There were some really interesting topics that Alex raised there. And I actually feel very positive about how the local area here is equipped to respond, adapt, get back on its feet and actually prosper when we hopefully start to get back to business soon. Do please join me again, leave a review or rating with any comments and be sure to subscribe to be the first to hear our latest episodes. This podcast was brought to you by Alistair James Insurance Brokers of Cheltenham. We provide personal insurance for high value homes and contents including fine art, collectibles, jewellery and watches and for commercial insurance a variety of sectors including commercial property, liability and construction. Visit our website ajamesinsurance.co.uk and see the link to it in our show notes or follow us on all the usual social media channels to find out how we can help with all your insurance requirements.